0: Tango was the embodiment of the way you had to be in the world. The followership and the leadership in tango is passed off almost imperceptibly between the two people dancing. And it's this beautiful agreement of when to lead, when to follow. There are two sides of a coin. And I could tell you that's the antithesis of the way I was taught design and taught to practice it.
1: Welcome to AIGA's Design Adjacent. In this podcast, we explore topics and areas that intersect with design to explore the shifts in how we interact with each other and the world around us. Join AIGA's Executive Director, Benny F. Johnson, in conversation with industry leaders who are innovating and designing the future.
2: Hello, and welcome to the AIGA Design Adjacent podcast the podcast that talks about the nexus of design, both today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Benny F. Johnson, and today we're going to talk about design as a problem solver and how design can help us shift our thinking, both as individuals and at a societal level. Today, I'm honored my special guest is Terry Irwin. Terry is a professor in the School of Design at Carnegie Mellon University and director of its Transition Design Institute. From 2009 to 2019, she actually served as head of the School of Design. um, And where she led the faculty through a redesign of the curricula at both undergraduate, master's and doctoral levels, to place design for society and environment at the heart of all of its programs. Terry is also a proud former member of our AIGA board, And she helped AIGA program Head, Heart, and Hand, our AIGA design conference that showcased the power of design. She is also our most recent 2021 AIGA medalist. She is recognized for her vision and her enduring provocation to shape design, education, and philosophy through transition design the need for societal transitions towards more sustainable and plural futures. Terry, thank you for joining us.
0: My pleasure, Benny, thank you.
2: I've been really excited and looking forward to our continued conversation. During our fireside chats, I've had a chance to talk with design leaders from around the world and different backgrounds. And one name and one body of work always comes to the top. And that's none other than Terry Irwin and Transition Design. It's been fun to have so many people mention your name and the impact that your work in small and, you know, meaningful ways has manifest in design leaders of the last 20 years thinking about their work and their role. So I'd love to talk a bit for, for our listeners who may not be familiar with your work in transition design. I'd love to talk a little bit about what this means for us as individuals, as business and society. Great. I'm looking forward in the past two years in my role at AIG, as I mentioned, the work that you've done has come up with designers at both large organizations and small, looking at how your outline and framework is helping them shape more sustainable futures. At its heart, talk a bit about what transition design means to you and meant to you when you were creating this framework.
0: Well, I should absolutely say that transition design, as we practice it at Carnegie Mellon, was a collaborative effort between me as a designer, right. Gideon Kossoff, who is also a professor there, who is a social ecologist, has a PhD in design, and Cameron tonkin who has a background in philosophy and worked for many years with Tony Fry at the Eco Design Foundation. So at its heart, it was a transdisciplinary conversation about what It meant to design for systems level change. And it began as an inquiry about what new knowledge and skill sets design students needed to be able to design for systems level change.
2: When you think about this, I think it's a bold movement to move from there to radically rethinking your entire approach to education. What really led to that? That there was understanding that there was a there there. That there was something that mm-hmm. could, could really drive the future course of education.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that every good education program ought to be continually re-examining itself and responding to the changes that we're seeing in the world, particularly in this part of the 21st century, but also asking how could we lead or give back to the professions which we're educating young people young designers to join. So I think that the curriculum as it stood when I joined the school in 2009 had been in place for more than 10 years. And I think that many advances in design, which certainly grew out of the Silicon Valley boom of the nineties and then its subsequent waves, but also interaction design, the advent of service design, and I would say the popularity of design thinking for both good and ill, the D right. school, firms like IDEO, right, right, right. I think they raised the awareness right. of design and designers beyond their traditional free. And so all of a sudden business started taking notice, you know, design came to be seen as something that could provide value and innovation. But I also think that many of us, not, not just Carnegie Mellon, we were also trying to also look at what the consequences of this ubiquity was bringing with it and that was certainly its connection to larger problems. And every, this goes on in every discipline, but I think designers Perhaps in education, there's a blurrier line between academia and the practice. There's a bit more fluidity, which I, I think is a good thing. Right. So it was really time to assess what was going on in the outside world and this new expansive thinking and try and figure out how a undergrad and master's curriculum should respond to that.
2: You know, one of the the words that always comes up when we talk about your work, it's always provocative, mm-hmm. kind of pushing, pushing the edge. I, I, I said that to make you smile a bit. <laughs> but, I'm smiling. You know, really just how much of a change this was. We've talked a bit about before your experience with growing up in the traditional design field and having mm-hmm. your career arc. I mean, but talk a little bit about that because you spent time in the West Coast and technology companies and big brands working with design, you didn't just start at this point. This was part of your growth and transition.
0: Yeah, I, I had been working in corporate identity and branding for a big part of my career. And then in the early nineties, opened the San Francisco office, along with my partner, Bill Hill of MetaDesign, a, a firm nice. founded by Eric Speakerman. And we worked on very large projects, but because we were in San Francisco, that you know, that incredible wave that took place in the Silicon Valley in the 90s, we were right in the midst of that. And it was heady and exciting. And we were doing a lot of design that was, that was systemic in that it went right. on for long durations. There were many moving parts. But I began to also see a connection between our solutions and mm-hmm. the problems in the world. And of Mm -hmm. course, a lot of this is because Meta, like many other firms, are completely embedded in our dominant capitalist paradigm. So it's for profit. It's all about short term profit. Right. And um, not investing in longer term non-financial issues.
2: Classically managing to the quarter.
0: That's exactly it. Fashion seasons, fiscal quarters. Mm -hmm. And I always have to say that this coincided very neatly with a midlife crisis. Tell
2: us about this. What was the, instead of crisis, what was the opportunity for change?
0: Well, I think I began to question deeply the way I had been thinking about design and my role as a designer in the world. And what I began to see its connections to so many of the, what we call wicked problems. I realized that it, that stage in my life, I'd been designing for 30 years. I wasn't going to start overnight designing differently. I was gonna have to radically change myself. So my response was to, I left my company and I went back to school. And I thought I was either going to learn to read, to to design in a different way, or maybe I would join the Peace Corps and do something entirely Uh differently something different with my life and I ended up studying science and ecology and chaos and complexity theory and that for me was just the right thing to do because it let me view my discipline my field from outside it but it also let me study deeply in another area right and bring a lot of those ideas back to design when I chose to return
2: And that's that's been the spirit of these conversations for our design adjacent podcasts. Mm -hmm. Finding things that are on the outside and and how do we manage to work them to reinforce our space. So, what was the first wicked problem that captured your attention?
0: Oh, I don't know if there was a single one, Benny. I just started looking at the way in which design was embedded in the for-profit marketplace and how. We were never able to draw big enough problem frames around whatever problem the client was bringing to us yes, because right. we had to work fast and we had to solve every problem like we solved it before because time right. is muddy and the right. more efficiently you work, the bigger the profit. And what we know is that most any problem that crosses the threshold in a design firm is really just a symptom of something much bigger. Mm-hmm. So I think for years, I just began trying to learn to connect the dots. And wicked problems are always connected to other wicked problems. Right. So, yeah. And
2: so you spoke a bit about deciding to kind of uproot and change your, change your knowledge set and change your experience. So you're, you're moving from the U.S. to, and I want our, our team to understand this, who are listening, that you moved to
0: Scotland. I moved to England first and did a master's degree. Okay. And then I moved to Scotland to continue this study in a doctoral program.
2: And so we talked about perspectives and, you know, one being outside of the discipline. But how did you react in working with fellow scholars and teachers and practitioners like yourself who were outside of, of a core classic U.S. corporate environment? Mm-hmm. How did that begin to shape your thoughts?
0: Well, it made all the difference, really, because it wasn't so much entering academia because the place that I studied, Schumacher College was really a center for ecological studies. So Mm. it was really stepping into a tribe on the planet of environmentalists and people who were spending all of their time helping rethink the human presence on the planet. And those were people from science and ecology and um, activism and Green Thought and my partner and collaborator, Gideon Kossoff, I met him at Schumacher College and he comes out of a a social ecology background. So that was a huge turning point for me. And the person that brought me there was the physicist Fritjof Capra, who I'd been in conversation with. Mm -hmm. So it was like entering into, well, it was like finding your tribe. All of a sudden,
2: Yeah, it really sounds like you did. And because I was going to ask you, how were you received as a designer with the other disciplines? Were there any barriers that you had to overcome with the viewpoints on what design is and isn't and what you were bringing to the table?
0: Not really. I think you always have an entree into that world if you're trying to make the world a better place. And that seems to be a common thread that just transcends any differences people have in nationality, ethnicity, belief system. I mean, that's the great, the bridge between people I have found. Mostly people just didn't know what design was. I think there's always those cliche notions of, oh, so you design logos or you design books and I didn't care. I didn't really care whether anybody understood what it was I did because I was in a learning mode. I was trying right. to study what they knew and right. was just in beginners' minds. So I very often didn't even try and explain where I came from, what I did before. Right. I was just learning. And that was a very liberating posture to be in, I found.
2: Right. And to go from being the expert leader to that space of being the learner who's open up to the new ideas. A lot of our conversation and a lot of the work you deal with come at this nexus of design and science. Mm-hmm. And we know that those are topics that, I mean, I see a natural affinity, but for years, people didn't really talk about them together. But they're always connected in the work that we see. Tell us a bit about how you see the growing connection, how it can integrate into society, thinking about design and science together.
0: Well, I, I mean, I should clarify, I studied a very progressive, unusual form of science. So I did a master's right. degree in something called holistic science. right? And in that program, they actually were highly critical of mm. the dominant reductionist scientific paradigm, okay. which like design frames things in very small frames, you know, right. let's, reduce something to its lowest common denominator, or let's kill an organism and study it at a microscopic level to try and understand how it lives. And the man who ran the program, Brian Goodwin, was a scientist, but he felt that the reductionist scientific approach was itself a wicked problem in the world and was responsible for this rush to specialization and reductionism that's found in almost every field. So part of what he was doing is looking at new scientific discoveries of the late 20th century, things like chaos and complexity theory, Gaia theory and living systems theory, which are all about connecting the dots and contextualizing knowledge. And so in that way, I think it's not very far away from design or many other disciplines because it's essentially explaining the principles of how life works and life is networked. It's holarchic, it's symbiotic. And those are universal principles that if you take them into practically any field or discipline, they have the potential to transform the way we think about and apply that discipline.
2: It's powerful in in your language there to transform. (laughs) And when I speak to design leaders and they talk about the work you and your colleagues have done, that's what comes to mind, kind of transforming what could be possible, starting in a design discipline, but working with others in dynamic collaboration. And that's a (laughs) word we hear all the time. But but to really think about how we can better collaborate to work across teams to have a more sustainable future or futures. Mm -hmm. What advice do you have for this next generation of design leaders and business leaders who are leading with this holistic view for how they can approach sustainability and these wicked problems?
0: Yeah, great question. I think one of the main things to know is that if you want to change your practice, you need to change your mindset. Oh, true. And I think we need to shift from having a mindset of being right. an expert or the expert in the room to believing that many heads are better than one. Right. To understanding that within any any social system that's being affected by a wicked problem, the actor's already in that system, know more about the problem and how to solve it than we outside experts do. Mm. Mm-hmm. So the other thing is there is no single solution to a wicked problem and no single field or discipline can solve it. Right. So right there, it tells us that we have to get into radical transdisciplinary collaboration with experts from other fields and disciplines. But the people who are already in that system, in a co-design process. So you have to fundamentally believe many heads are better than one. Right. And I think the other thing we have to try and hang on to is beginner's mind. Like we all know a whole lot about very little. Right. So you have to learn to dance and you will only be leading very small percentage of the time you're going to be following. And when I was at Schumacher College, Brian Goodwin, who ran the course, made all of us master's students take a week of tango lessons. Okay. Because he felt like tango, tango was the embodiment of the way you had to be in the world. The followership and the leadership in tango is passed off almost imperceptibly between the two people dancing. And it's this beautiful agreement of when to lead, when to follow. There are two sides of a coin. Right. So it's knowing how to be a follower most of the time and sensing when to step in and offer your expertise in a posture of humility and service to the system the rest of the time. And I could tell you that's the antithesis of the way I was taught design and taught to practice it.
2: And it's a beautifully elegant and powerful metaphor. You're right, because that interdependence is essential to the overall success of the
0: dance. Right, that's right.
2: My team members and I, we have conversations all the time, especially doing global work, that our premise has always been, good ideas come from everywhere. Yeah, And we always start the conversation there, right? So there's not a bias of geography or border. There's not a bias of approach. And if you're always coming back to good ideas come from everywhere, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, we framed it and we changed the language around. It used to start off and say good ideas can come from anywhere, but just mm-hmm. that flip of the stage puts a bias that those other places are not on the same equal. And so we changed the language to, yeah, that there, there's not a distrusting or a, I can't believe an ideas come from this yeah. contribution. It's good ideas come from everywhere. Right.
0: Yeah. That's a great example.
2: That are equal to that space. So as you look to, you know, we talk about students now, you've had an opportunity to have the new curriculum in place. What are the things that encourage you today as you see students coming into this revised curriculum that you have?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I think the main thing I've been seeing, and we t- we've talked about this in the faculty, is over maybe the last five, six years in particular, students seem to be less focused on getting their education, getting out, finding the highest paid jobs so they can begin to build that lifestyle that we all used to aspire to and then become famous. Right. And I think, I think increasingly... We have students showing up who are very aware of social injustice and inequity. They're way more concerned with um, environmental issues because they are the generations that are now gonna be most adversely affected. So they show up ready to engage with that, asking big questions. And then when it comes time to graduate, we increasingly see them making really amazing choices about designing a lifestyle that will give them the wiggle room to integrate ethics, to align their values and ethics with what they do for a living and be willing to challenge the companies they go into and work for to do the same. And 10, 15 years ago, I did not see that.
2: That's really powerful to see that train change within a generation. Mm -hmm. And I I was going to ask you as well, we've seen the change in the students. Have you seen measurable change in some of the companies that we talk about?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think you do see companies either becoming more genuinely focused on these issues and creating committees within them or trying to figure out how to give back for a while there, the B Corp was a big conversation or at least they're giving lip service to it. And what we saw in the environmental movement for years was this phenomenon called greenwashing. Right. Where a company pretended to be green, but they were just doing it to increase market share. It was a branding ploy. But studies showed that even those that began talking about it with no intention of changing got such positive feedback that little by little they actually began to change right so i think there's a a much more palpable conversation about these issues going on now and was in the age of social networking both good and ill comes from the ubiquitous and immediate circulation of information so i think companies are much more challenged than they were in the past. Yeah, they have a long way to go. We have a long way to go as long as profit drives everything, quick profit.
2: We think about it and you think about the growth of organizations adopting triple bottom lines Mm -hmm. in which they're looking at both profits, but the way in which they show up in the world and, and around them and really having groups that are actually being audited against how they're performing. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things years ago we worked on with for companies to not just be able to say they were about environmental change or say they're about sustainability, but actually auditing those reports the same way financials are audited. Yes. So that you have to actually follow through. So the claims you make in terms of the world around you are in some small way quantified and validated. Yes. To say, yes, we, we are showing up the way we say we do. But I think it's probably interesting for the next generation to see companies that start off with this mindset. Yeah. That don't grow and then they're pivoting. But the students that are coming through our programs today who are now looking to build the companies of tomorrow.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think asking really fundamental questions like how much is enough? Right. They uh, need to be honest. How big is big enough? How much is enough?
2: Right. What is the antidote to growth? Yeah. You know, it can't just be growth for growth's sake over and over again. How do we have sustainability and how do we have a space that fosters innovation, but innovation doesn't necessarily have to equal excessive growth?
0: Yeah, that's right. We tend to have a very mechanistic idea of the way things work. We just think in terms of growth, meaning bigger and bigger and bigger. And we ourselves, if we kept growing our whole lives, we'd be monstrous. We stopped growing at about age 18. And it doesn't mean we don't continue to evolve and grow in other ways, but I don't think we have that mental model for our organizations. And I think we need to adopt it.
2: Well, in many ways, as you mentioned, the structures, reward that counterproductive behavior. That's right. It's always a challenge with companies that are public aligning mission, goals, and values with direct quarterly financial incentives that are always tied into what stakeholders or shareholders want. But we see that shareholders have a more have a broader portfolio of what's important to them now. Yeah. And companies are, are seeing that the financial management is one thing, but it doesn't always equal the same way that profits were showing up the last 20 and 30 years. Yeah, I think about communities that we've all grown up in, you would see successful businesses Mm -hmm. that were family or community run, that were even regional, that were successful businesses that weren't driven by those same growth mechanisms, but continue to add value, sustain community and families year over year, season Mm -hmm. over season. Yes. So we know, you know, that that it is possible in this space.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's just, I suppose it's a little like uh, addiction. You know, you get used to these quick, easy profits that are always growing, growing, growing. And, you know, how do we begin to transition to different kinds of lifestyles that are predicated upon growing profits and that are highly, highly material? Right. Um, And design is certainly implicated in our disposable society. More and more products, ever more disposable.
2: What are some of the, the wicked problems that are capturing the attention of your students and your team today? That's kind of top of mind.
0: You know, I think Black Lives Matter and that entire movement and recent tragic events in this country dominate a lot of conversation on university campuses, Mm -hmm. and it's bubbling up in ways that I think are difficult for students, but it's also leading to a lot of positive change, structural positive change. So I think certainly matters of diversity and equity and Mm -hmm. looking deeply at um, issues related to colonialism, and you have the design justice movement, all of those are certainly top of mind. But I think most of our students are very much aware of the problems with large things like capitalism and globalism and the way in which those large wicked problems manifest in place and culture specific ways. Right. But also the growing gap between North and South, between rich and poor, We're seeing that play out with the COVID crisis right now. The fact that the first world countries forwarded the vaccines, it meant large swaths of the rest of the world didn't get vaccinated. And that is the very situation that they're now speculating fueled the emergence of this latest COVID variant. So all of these things are interconnected. And what we really try to do in our curriculum at Carnegie Mellon is get them to do a lot of systems mapping. So whatever problem they choose and they're passionate about, their colleagues begin mapping it and they will always begin to see interconnections between them. And that's really what we want. We want to graduate new generations of designers that simply put, know how to connect the dots.
1: Yes.
2: But what advice do you have for those who are not able to join you in your program at Carnegie Mellon? But we have a lot of designers, business leaders who are design thinkers who I know are going to listen to us today and be intrigued. How can someone get their toe and start thinking mm-hmm. transition design?
0: Yeah. Well, we have our transition design seminar is required for our PhD students because we offer a doctorate in transition design. Okay. but. Right from the beginning, we put the entire syllabus up online as an open source website. So if you go to transition all one word, yes. Okay. You can read about it, but there is just a wealth of links to readings, articles, all kinds of resources that, that provide a really good foundation in it. But I would also say Google systems change, Google. Education for systems change. There is a growing cadre of people on the planet who are involved in transition and systems thinking systems education offerings, both for very little money as well as entire programs. If you're really dedicated to making change, it doesn't have to be transition design, but anything related to systems change will get you there you have to be willing to read and you have to be willing, I think, to get in conversation with other people and find a tribe because it can be very lonely work. You need to begin to build a network of people you can learn from and talk to.
2: Well, I remember our our conversation when I get a chance to reach out to you via Zoom and call you and tell you that you were this year's winner (laughs) of of the medal. And it's one of my favorite conversations of all time, just your reaction in in listening to you talk about it, being lonely at the space, which you mentioned when thinking in this way early on and having your professional association embrace you and and just to give a tribute to all the work that you've done to help lead us in these new directions, which it's a start of the conversation. So many design leaders online and offline reach out to me and tell me it's the work that you and your colleagues did Is influencing them in their major roles they are today. But I just wanted to congratulate you again and tell you how much we as the AIGA community appreciate having you and your service and challenging and being provocative for ideas and spaces for, for all these years.
0: Well, Benny, it was one of the great honors of my life, and I've been so touched to receive the honor. AIGA has been one of my tribes for decades now. And I guess the thing I would say in response to all of those kind words is really all we're trying to do is jog people's memory, because I really think humans are pattern seekers. We recognize patterns. Our ability to understand systems is deep within us. All we need to do is wake up that knowledge. And I feel like that's what our work is really about, is just kind of waking it up.
2: You know, I think... That's a wonderful note for us to close our conversation today about waking up and waking Mm -hmm. up the knowledge that we have. Thank you. It's been incredible to have a conversation with Terry Irwin, designer, change maker, open learner, and design champion. I really appreciate you spending the time with us today on Design Adjacent. And we invite you all to check out more information on transition design and the role that it can play in helping to create a more sustainable and dynamic future for us all. Terry, I can't thank you enough for spending time with me this afternoon and joining us for this
1: edition of Design
2: Adjacent.
0: My pleasure, Benny. Thank you.
1: Thanks for joining us for this episode of Design Adjacent, a podcast about the nexus of design today and tomorrow. Show notes for this episode will be available on AIGA.org. Please subscribe to our show on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. AIGA's Design Adjacent Podcasts and its contents are the copyright of AIGA, the Professional Association for Design. All rights reserved. Any redistribution or reproduction of part or all of the content in any form is prohibited without AIGA's express written permission. My name is Shan Huang. Until next time.